Second Kings chapter 6 and verse 24. Second Kings chapter 6 verse 24. Let's pray as we open up God's word. Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray, oh God, that we would see what you want us to see. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we'd have a a sense of urgency that can only be explained due to your spirit's work. And I pray, Lord, that that we would see the application that, that goes all the way from 800 and something B.C. all the way to our current day. I pray we would see that, Lord. I pray you'd be glorified in what is said. I pray, oh God, that you give me strength in my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yesterday, I uh, was out of town with Ann and Ellie, and I, I'm, I feel really old these days. And uh, we were on our second college visit yesterday. And uh, we were looking at a school in Jackson, Tennessee, and I was, uh, Ellie was participating in a, in a, a competition, and I was driving around and had my GPS and thinking about how long it's been since I did that. And uh, I had, finally, I, I had Ann in the car with me, we were driving towards the campus, and I kept hearing this siren. And I don't know about you, but that's, I don't like that. You know, like when you're driving and you don't want to be that guy that doesn't get out of the way for the ambulance or a police car. And sometimes, though, I usually am that guy because I can't figure out where they are. And they'll be right behind me. And I was like, where are they? I kept hearing a siren. And I was like, where are they at? I was like, Ann, where are they at? Where are they at? And she's like, I don't, I don't know. And, and we kept going. We finally realized it was, she goes, it's a tornado siren. It's a tornado siren. And I was hitting parts of the, I was getting in range of the area where the tower was, where that siren was. And, and so I was driving through, and uh, we were headed up towards the cafeteria, and, and I was laughing because I said, I don't know if Ellie's going to go to school here, but I might just because I like the cafeteria. <laughs> I'll be the old guy in the cafeteria eating the buffet. It was really good food. But we're looking at 2 Kings, and, and, and we're looking at these passages, and First and 2 Kings, and we're studying the history of Israel. And so we're looking at these warnings, just like that tornado siren was giving a warning to everybody in that area that the conditions were possible for a tornado. Just as I was holding my GPS and I was getting instruction and I was getting guides along the way, I had all these things happening at once. And as we go through the narrative of the Old Testament, we have to keep in mind that these are not just historical stories given because there were good ancient historians. But this is God's word, and this is intended for us. And as Romans 15, 4 tells us, this is intended for our instruction, that through the scriptures we might have encouragement, that we might grow in hope. So today we're going to look at three narratives. Three narratives and and really four takeaways on these three narratives. We're going to start with a very... Strange passage of scripture, disturbing. Stan read it to you. And if you'd never been to church and you came in and heard Stan reading that, you might think that we were a cult. But that's an honest description of mankind and their waywardness. Don't you? One of the things that, uh, you know, 
and studying uh, over the years and studying about the Scripture, it's been so encouraging to study the Scripture in a setting where you are exposed to all the arguments against the Bible, all academia's arguments that come against the Scripture. And, and one of the, I believe, the blessings of the Word of God is that it does not hide behind the faults of people. It is very open and transparent about the nature of mankind. And so when we look at this passage, it's going to cause you to really just be in shock and horror over the nature of mankind and the situation taking place within Israel and Samaria. But be reminded, the scripture always speaks into the modern time. And when we look at this passage, even though it's taking place 2,800 years ago, you're going to look at it, and I really believe you're going to say, Scripture reveals the heart of humanity. Scripture shows us who we really are. It's as if you could say, how in the world do these writers of old, how are they able to read the headlines today? And you may be thinking, well, we're not talking about all these horrible things today, but I think if you go further than that and you get to the root of what mankind is like apart from Christ, you see there are no boundaries of which mankind is capable apart from the grace and the restraining grace of God. So here we are, the peril of an unbelieving heart. The peril of an unbelieving heart. Three narratives, four takeaways. The first narrative, so when I'm looking at a passage like this, I don't know about you, but the way my brain works, it, I have to try to get handles on the narratives because there's so many details. So what we're going to try to do is walk through an outline with four takeaways in these three narratives, but in each one, I'm going to try to give you a sense of what's taking place in that passage. The first takeaway that I believe we're going to see from the first narrative is the danger of hardened hearts. The danger of hardened hearts, to have a heart that is hardened. This morning, what is the state of your heart? There's a lot of people that are active in the things of God, but they have hearts that are hard. And there's a lot of people with exposure to the things of God that have hearts that are hard, people that are exposed to the truth of who God is, people who are exposed to how God has worked in history, people that are exposed to all types of information, correct theology, maybe even a correct gospel presentation, but they have hard hearts. And we see, I think, in this narrative, amongst many things that we notice, there's so many applications you could pull here. But I want us to focus here on the hardened hearts that we're going to notice in chapter 6, 24 through 33. And here's the way this is working here. You've got Syria attacks Israel in Samaria. The siege in war brings about great strain on the land. It creates a great famine. And, and what we see there at the end of this section in verse 26 to verse 33, two women and a king reveal a wicked nation. Two women and a king reveal a wicked nation. So I'm going to leave that up there just for a second. 
because I want you to think about, okay, what's happening in the flow at the end of chapter 6? And we see within this narrative the danger of hardened hearts. The danger of hardened hearts. And, and we see in verse 24, the army of Syria comes into Samaria. Samaria is the hub of the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and notice the, the strange things we read in verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. And, and what is this? Why is this so bizarre? What well, speaks about the, the nastiness and the struggle of war and people that their lives are at stake, people that literally the siege is causing a complete shutdown of all the supply chain, of every way that they had resources. And what's taking place is that in looking up some information about this, um, it's interesting because it gives some amounts. And, and the amounts are, uh, are fascinating. 80 shekels of silver is an enormous amount. Just to give you an idea of five shekels of silver, the dove droppings, it, it literally, um, you're talking about, I was reading in one place, let me see if I can find it here, you're talking about the average worker would make this amount, five shekels of silver, in a six-month period of time. And now you're telling me that the only way that they're going to survive is to go with th th this dung to eat? I was reading more about this, just trying to get a feel for this. Um, one said, so severe was the siege that the inhabitants of Samaria were reduced not only to slaughtering and eating valuable animals, but also to consuming body parts that would not normally be consumed and purchasing them for exorbitant prices. You read this here, and one, one idea of how much money this is, when you think about the donkeys, the cost of a live horse in 1 Kings 10 is 150 shekels of silver. So now you're, you're looking at this fact that they're having to, to literally do whatever they can do in order to survive. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says this, when they could, and speaking of the, uh, the siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD, he said, when they could no longer gather herbs, some were in such dire straits as to search the sewers and old cattle dung hills and to eat the refuse they found there so that what they previously could not endure so much as to see now became their food. That's the situation. There's a siege. The people are in dire straits. But, but what happens here is you have this bizarre story, and it really makes more sense once you understand the severity of the famine. The severity of the famine, wicked people are going to act out of that, and godless people are going to act out of complete disdain and, and complete rejection of what they know in the Levitical law. And you read in 26, now as the king of Israel is passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? 
from the threshing floor or from the wine press. When there's not godly leadership, it affects everything below it. You ever notice that? Whether you have a church with a, a pastor who's not godly, it affects the climate of the church. When you've got a leader of a nation who is not godly, it affects the climate of the country. Amen? We've seen that regardless of what political party. Amen? And it, and it shows the state of a nation. And here, though, you've got God's people. You've got God's people, and you've got a leader. And, and remember, think about the tragedy. I, I got to keep moving here because this could turn into nine sermons. But, but what you're looking at here is, is like, think about the call of David, and think about a man who followed after God's own heart, a man that God had given the grace to follow him. And you think about Solomon, and when David gave the charge to Solomon, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, serve him with a willing heart, with a mind, and, and all of this. And now you see the nations here. And now you've got this king in wartime, in famine, who's talking sarcastically to these two women that are crying out. It shows you the state of the country, the state of the nation. And when we keep going here, how can I help you? Verse 28, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. I was listening to a Hebrew scholar and, and he believed that it was a minority view. He believed the child had already died. And now you're, you're talking about, you're thinking, wait a minute, cannibalism. You're thinking about this is awful. This is terrible. And, and, and you've got this horrible situation in verse 29. She's upset because the other woman didn't keep her bargain, but she's hidden her son. All of this is going on. But then the king, the king you would think would want to reach out to God's man. What does the king do, though? Verse 30, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now, in the Old Testament, often that's a sign of good things to come. It speaks of a penitent, repentant heart where someone is broken before God, but it's short-lived. You see, sometimes the question that is, is so difficult to, to, to reflect on, but many of us have been sorry over our sin, but it's not been a godly sorrow. Some of you have tears over the sinful condition of your heart, but it's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. You can find a, a person that is in extreme situations. Could be alcohol, drugs, could be pornography, could be an affair. And sometimes when those people are caught or shown up, they're extremely remorseful. And they show signs of brokenness and humility. But what we have to see and what we need to pray about the state of our own heart is that apart from the Spirit taking our sorrow and producing a godly sorrow, our worldly sorrow is simply a sorrow that leads to death. And it looks like this man at this point is expressing a godly, repentant heart, but he's not. The king heard, he tore his clothes, he was passing by on the wall, the people looked, behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body, and then what does he do? Things start to get worse quick. He doesn't call for Elisha or make a pledge to Elisha. I mean, here is the guy that represents the God of Israel, 
And he vows to do what? To take the head of Elisha. In verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house. Elders were sitting with him. The king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before a messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, and this is the message from the king. Here it is. This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? What a sad day. The danger of hardened hearts of the people of Israel who had heard the word of the Lord and rejected it, who had heard the word of the Lord and were apathetic, who had heard the word of the Lord instead of humility, they were arrogant. Instead of a yieldedness, they did not have an attitude or posture of humility, but in their pride, they rejected and disobeyed the word of God. You see that here with these two women. You see that with the king, the danger of hardened hearts. Oh God, would you give me the condition and reveal to me the condition of my heart? Deuteronomy spoke about this reality Remember, at the end of Deuteronomy, it's an important part of the Old Testament to remember because it speaks of the blessings and the cursings of the law. And it basically outlines, okay, if you obey me, here are the blessings you're going to walk in. But if you disobey me, here's what it's going to look like. Listen to the blessing and cursing section of the law as it relates to the fulfillment here. Deuteronomy 28, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord God has given you, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Wow. They are literally walking in the warning that they were given at the end of Deuteronomy. Hard hearts, but not only hard hearts. I want to look at a passage with you in Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And notice the exhortation. And I pray as people under the new covenant in 2023 reading about this strange story to us in 2 Kings, that we would listen to this next verse. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's exactly what's taking place in Israel. The deception of sin has led to hardened hearts not only with the king, but with these two ladies. Only God can cure this. Only God can reveal. There, there's hope here today. You may be out there today thinking, you know what? I, you know, brokenness begins to help you realize who you really are. And you may be thinking, man, my heart is wicked. It, we, can, we can make people think we're something we're not. I think you've all, some of you have lived long enough to know that. I've lived long enough to know that. I've seen it in my own life. I've been a fraud before. You've been a fraud before, or is it just a pastor? 
where you make somebody think you're something you're not. And what do we do when God begins to reveal to us the condition of our heart? Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't it interesting? If you want to find the recipe for a hardened heart, reject the word of God. But if you want a pathway to a broken heart, to a heart that's receptive to the truth of God, bow before the word of God and take heed to the word of the Lord. And how is that going to take place? The good news is this. It's not through self-improvement. I always crack up when I'm looking at Twitter or something, and it's like there's some really smart people out there. And a lot of them have some really good ideas, you know. Ten ways that you don't have to be a bum in middle age, you know. They give you ten things. Ten ways to be more organized and not be a worthless man with a dirty car, you know. And, and, and they have all these ideas. And I can just see in some of the brilliance of some people that have been created in the image of God they would say, well, let me tell you how you can self-remedy this problem of wickedness. And what they don't understand is only the gospel. God foresaw a day in which through the blood of his son, Jesus, he would provide a way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, friend, the only way that ultimately you can avoid a hardened heart is for God to break up the hard ground of your heart and do a transformative work and renewal. The second of all, narrative number two, the hope of gracious deliverance. Now, now what's happening here is this is the entire chapter so the first storyline, first narrative we've looked at, verse 24 to 33, we get into chapter 7, and what's happening here? Narrative number 2, Elisha proclaims that relief is coming. Immediately, his message of hope that inflation rates are going to drop big time, and that's exactly what he says. The inflationary rates of the day were going to drop, and that was going to be a huge blessing to the people because they couldn't survive donkey's heads and, and dung for the evening meal. But what happens? The captain doubts this word. But then God has a way of using the most unlikely people. We ought to be thankful. Four lepers raid the Syrian army. And then we see a strange fulfillment. The captain that earlier in verse 2 doubted the word of God actually finds himself following through with the fulfillment of what God, would, what God declared. He dies. So let's look at this. We get into chapter 7, and as we get into chapter 7, Elisha gives good news. Here, the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seeds of barley for a shekel, at the gate of Samaria. And, and looking at this, I, I hope this helps you. It helped me because I was as lost as you are if you're lost. If you're not, you, you're outdoing a lot of us. But basically, 
it says about 13 to 14 quarts of barley would also sell for about two-fifths of an ounce of silver. These prices, when compared to those in chapter 6, verse 25, indicated that the next day the famine in Samaria would end. This is huge. I mean, this is where you hear the horror stories of the Great Depression and the value of the dollar. And, and, you know, and, and going back in American history, when that began to change, what a burden off of people. When the dollar had more buying power, when people now could, could eat, they could feed their families, they could provide, all that stuff, huge. Well, this is exactly the same idea of what we're reading here. And, and, and Elisha says, look, hear the word of the Lord. That, that's critical because for us, his word of the Lord was God's revelation. It goes no different than we would say the revelation that God has given us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, all scripture inspired. Therefore, Elisha is revealing to the captain what God is going to do, and he doesn't believe it. One of the questions as we go through chapter seven is to ask yourself, are you more like Elisha or are you more like the captain? Now notice, I didn't ask you whether or not you attend church regularly. I didn't ask you if you're a part of a Bible study. Didn't even ask you if you have a devotion every day. Are you more like Elisha in response to the word of God or are you more like the captain? Elisha believes the word of God. He's like, take it to the bank. I can trust his promise. The captain's like, whatever, come on. It's like the guy in Portland that time I was working at a church and and uh, he played basketball. We played basketball uh, in the community, pickup games. And, and, and one night I played with them, and, and he came out, and he goes, hey, are you the guy that works at the church right there? I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, my kid goes to that afternoon program. He goes, it's really cute what y'all do. I didn't take that as a positive. <laughs> he basically was saying, I don't agree with what you're teaching these people. That's cute for y'all, but he didn't revere the word of the Lord. Now, now keep going here in the context. We've got the captain doubts. And what does it say here in verse 2? It's interesting. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But then Elisha says, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. He basically is declaring, you're going to see that God keeps his word, but you're not going to reap the blessings of it. And this is ultimately going to be prophetic because at the end of the chapter, the captain's going to die. When we look at this, he was presuming upon the word of God. I, I, there's a passage in Romans, it says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Now think about it. Elisha, at this point, 
had done over 10 miracles in Israel. His record was immaculate. His reputation was clearly as a servant of God. And yet this captain, and now hearing the declaration of God's kindness in the midst of disobedience, think about it. What did the people deserve? They deserved the cursings of the law as promised in Deuteronomy 28. People often say, well, God's not gracious in the Old Testament. He's gracious in the New Testament. That's just not true. That grace is fully revealed and manifested in its most beautiful way in Jesus Christ. But we see a God of grace throughout the Bible. And here we see grace because God is showing them, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to show you grace in the midst of this famine, in the midst of this struggle. I'm going to work. And in, in, in Romans here, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness. You know what the word presume means? It means to hold in contempt, to think lightly of, to despise. A lot of people despise the riches of God's kindness. And friend, one of the dangers and one of the perils of an unbelieving heart is when we get used to the good news of the kindness displayed in Jesus Christ. We begin to presume on it, take it lightly, cast it aside. And this is exactly what this man's doing. We can pray that our heart would have a different disposition than this captain. The four lepers pop up. Verse 3, now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? They basically are like, look, we got nothing to lose, y'all. Let's go for it. We're going to die anyway. Let's, you know, let's go out kicking. Let, let's go out giving it everything we have. And, and they come up with this plan, and it says, if they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they go out, verse 5. They go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came at the edge of the camp, behold, there was no one there. No one's home. Think about it. I mean, there's this raid. So outside of Samaria, there's this camp of the Syrian army. The lepers are like, hey, let's see what happens. They go over there. No one's home. Where did they go? Verse 6, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. God worked miraculously. This is like the stories you see in wartime in the book of Judges with Gideon. I mean, this goes back to all these famous Old Testament stories of war and the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, and, and he has angels at his disposal. And we saw that even in the last sermon that I was preaching about Elisha praying that God would open up the eyes of his servants so that he could see all who were fighting on behalf of Israel. And what happens is God confuses the people. Verse 7, they fled in the twilight, abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp. They fled for their lives. The gracious deliverance of God. Not only is God working to bring down the damaging and devastating effects of the famine, but God is providing victory and deliverance 
the lepers come to the edge of the camp. They, now, this is amazing, verse 8, 9, and 10. They go into the tent. They eat and drink. They're like, no one's home. It's like, uh, this is like how much fun it was growing up and you're, if you're trick-or-treating and they leave the candy basket outside the door. No one's home. I mean, it is like fun times on the neighborhood, right? They, take, they plunder it. They take it all. They go in. They carried off silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them. They came back and entered another tent. It's almost like they left, and they're like, wait a minute. Why are we leaving? There's more to get. And they go back, and they do it again. And they enter another tent. They carry off things from it, and they hid them. I mean, they're, they're, they're stacking up here. Verse 9, then they said to one another, this is interesting. We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning, light punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. In essence, it's like their conscience, and, and thanks be to God for the conscience that in his common grace he has given us. But here what we see is how can we not share this? Let us go and tell. I was listening to someone expound on this passage, and they made the comment, what a marvelous connection to our lives as Christians. Imagine a world of Christianity where those who have experienced the blessings hoard the blessings and seek to enjoy them just as a small group. Instead of saying, wait a minute, we got to share this. We got to get it out of these walls. There's people all around us that are living empty lives. People all around us that their sin will bring them to judgment before a holy God. And the only remedy and the only way of grace is the very remedy and the grace that we've received. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And those by grace through faith who have trusted that glorious message have a new story and have good news to share. Pray that we would learn from these lepers. So God's using unlikely servants. The captain doubts the word of God. The four lepers raid the Syrian army. He comes back. The king can't see what's happening. He doesn't even believe it. He thinks it's a ploy of the Syrians to catch him. And, and there's a servant, another unlikely man. I love all the faceless, nameless people that God uses. Praise be to God. He takes the foolish things of this world, to confound the wise. There's hope for all of us by his grace. And now what does he do? The servant says, hey, wait a minute. Wouldn't you think it'd be wise? Take five horses and go check it out one more time. And they go and check it out again. And guess what happens? They go as far as the Jordan and they realize, wait a minute. They've, they've left and ran. They're gone. And Israel takes the spoils. I'll tell you, what happens at the end of this, though, is tragic. Everything that 
God said would happen, verse 16, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seeds of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is going to come true. God is faithful to his promises. We can trust in the sufficiency and the authority of what God reveals. And what happens as a result is that God takes the life of this captain. Verse 17, now the king had appointed the captain. You hear more about him because he's already established it. Verse 18, for when the man of God had said to the king, two seeds of barley shall be sold for a shekel. And he goes on down and what does he say? Verse 20, and so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate and he died. What about you? What about you? If you're struggling like the captain and believing in the promises of God, what are the promises you're struggling believing today? I can relate with you. There's times in my life that I've really struggled with believing in the promises of God. And it revealed a lack of faith. It revealed a disobedient heart. And, and, and I want you to see this here because just as I want you to, to, to see the parallel, and you could fill in your own promises you could be going through suffering this morning and you just have a hard time believing the reality of this. Can't all join my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You're dealing with suffering and you're thinking, wait a minute. God's word says there's a purpose in my suffering, but your flesh is tempted to say, nah, I don't believe that. This isn't good. This is terrible. Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he defines what that good is in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you believe that God is working on your behalf for your good according to his faithful purpose? Maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with a certain sin. And anybody who says they don't struggle with sin is either lying or dead. Right? But maybe you're here and you've self-justified to the point where you basically are like, you know what, I can't deal with this. And you don't believe in this promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe it practically as it relates to your sanctification in the areas in which you're struggling today? I'm just using these as an example, and all I want you to see is this. Be encouraged. The very truth we learn about the captain's disobedience and unreliance of the promise of God, God is warning us, encouraging us, exhorting us not to be like the captain, but to understand when God speaks, it is fulfilled. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Have you lost sight of that promise? If we believed in that promise, I want you to ask yourself, if, if, if we fully believed in that promise, 
How would it change the way you looked at next week? How would it change the way you view yourself? How would it change the way you view your future? How would it change the way you look at circumstances? We can believe in the promises of God because all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in him. The last narrative, the encouragement of obedient vessels. We've seen the danger of hardened hearts. We've seen the hope of gracious deliverance. And then finally, the encouragement of obedient vessels. There's some unique people in this storyline. And we're going to see the Shunammite woman again. She was a vessel that God used. And we're also going to examine again the life of Elisha. And we see another example of someone who humbled themselves before God. And they were used mightily by God. As we jump into this final narrative, we see Elisha advised the Shunammite woman about the famine. We see that at the end of the famine, she returns to make an appeal before the king in verses 3 through 6. And then we see Elisha go to Damascus, and there he foretells not only the death of the king of Syria, but Haziel's reign as king. So we get into this next section, and we see the Shunammite woman. The question immediately arises, is this chronological in order? And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it is. I think this is selective, and he's doing it because he is telling a story, and he's emphasizing where he wants to emphasize. Have you ever told a story to someone, and you've emphasized very specifically to make a point. You ever done that? We've all done that. Now, is it possible that this story is chronological? Now, the issue is this. Remember that guy, the servant, I called Gehazi, probably Gehazi? Gehazi. Gehazi is going to resurface here. And the question is this. If it's chronological, Gehazi has undergone repentance, most likely. If it's not chronological, it's going back and telling us, filling in the pieces of something that's already happened before that we've read about. I'm not sure which one it is. The comforting reality is this. There's examples in the scripture, not only of those who are judged and those who are warnings of judgment, but there's examples all through the scripture of God's redemptive reconciling work and people that blow it, right? So I don't know which one it is, but my feeling is, my gut guess is, if Gehazi would have repented, I just have a guess that we would have heard about it specifically. Just a guess. That's my thought. We get into chapter 8. I think he's referring back a little earlier. Could be wrong, though. When we look at this, though, he tells the woman that we've already read about, the woman that was given a son, the woman whose son was raised from the dead. I mean, what an amazing testimony this woman has of the God of Israel. And what happened? Elisha tells her to go away because of the famine. The woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. 
And now she comes back at the end of the seven years. And when she comes back, she goes to the king. She wants her house and her land. Now, this is amazing. This is way before cell phones, obviously. Man, our kids just don't know what it means to have to call collect after practice. I'd be like, Mom, don't accept the collect charge. The lady would be like, will you take a collect call? I'd be like, pick me up, pick me That was the way the barbers rolled with collect calls. But but they can't coordinate. Think about it, how hard that would be. It's like, uh, again, I'm serious though, back in the late 80s, early 90s, if you didn't didn't get the call and someone didn't show up at a restaurant with your buddies, you sort of just don't see them the rest of the night. Too bad, didn't work out. I don't know where they're at, but I'm mad they didn't somehow tell me. And, and now this, this woman is going to leave the land of Philistia, and she's coming back. The famine's over. And she goes back, and she's going to come in. So think about it. She's got to go to the king. She's going to the king. It just so happened that after seven years, this woman makes this journey into the king's presence, and lo and behold, Gehazi is in a conversation with the king. Now, wait a minute. Who was the one individual besides Elisha that could share information to the king about what God had done in the life of this Shunammite woman? You see what's happening here? I tell you, it's hard to accept, but it's a place of health to accept it. When we worry and are filled with anxiety, we basically declare we have no trust in the sovereign providence of God. Let me say that again. When we're filled with anxiety and worry, it's a public declaration that we have no trust in the sovereign providence of God. I can speak that from experience. This woman comes back. Verse 4, the providence of God. The king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Now, before, if you take this as happening before, not chronologically, this is part of the sad reality that Gehazi was a witness to what God had done with this Shunammite woman, verse five, and while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my Lord, O king, here is the woman. Wow. It just so happened. And what happens is, God intervenes and God gives her back her land. God gives her back her house. God gives her back all she lost because of the famine. Providence is this. I was reading, one man said, providence is normally defined in Christian theology as the unceasing activity of the creator, whereby an overflowing bounty and goodwill, he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for 
his own glory. I got good news if you're a worrier and if you're someone filled with panic and anxiety, you can rest on the sovereign pillow of the providence of God. Worry is this illusion of being able to control your own life. But Christian, we can rest. Grudem says God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purposes. There's so much comfort in here. The providence of God, J.I. Packer says, is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. Let me ask you something. If God is capable of being completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe, do you think he can handle me? Think I can trust him in my trials? Think I can trust him for the meeting I'm worried about? Think I can trust him for the fear that I have over people and what they think of me? Think I can trust him for the unknowns that are in the future? Think I can trust him for all the things that are on my plate for tomorrow? I tell you, it releases this great exhale of adoration and praise and gratitude and thankfulness to the worthy worship of who he is. And we see it on display here. And I'm, I'm, I'm going too long, so here we go. We're moving. He asks her. She tells him. And then what happens at the end of the chapter, chapter 8, Ben-Adad is sick, and Elisha ends up telling he foretells that Haziel is going to take his reign and, and that he's going to recover from his sickness, but ultimately he would not recover, that, that death was going to follow. And, and what happens is in verse 10 and 11 are really, really interesting. Haziel is a servant of the king. He comes, and then there's this strange interaction. Verse 11, and he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. Amazing here. The king, servant, Haziel, face to face with Elisha. You ever had somebody to stare at you a long time and it's really weird? You ever been in like in a restaurant and someone's looking at you and you're thinking, they're not really looking at me. And then you look back and you go, they're looking at me. And then you go, I'm going to count to seven and see if they're still looking. And then you look up and they're still looking and it's weird. And you don't know what to do. Haziel's looking at this guy and Elisha will not take his eyes off of him and it was embarrassing and Elisha begins to cry because Elisha had been given the knowledge that Haziel would not only take the place of the king of Syria, but God would use Haziel as an instrument of discipline upon his own people and it was going to be ugly. It was going to be a violent judgment. And Elisha is a man of God softened by the word of God. As a man who was bold, as a man who could declare the truths of God, he had a heart for the people of God, and he wept, cried. Haziel realizes it. 
And then he kills the king in verse 15. There's this judgment. Here at the end, what you find is the final takeaway in all of this is this, the reality of holy judgment. The reality of holy judgment upon the king of Syria. You see the reality of judgment upon this other man, the the man who was the captain in the earlier chapter. We've already read about the judgment of Gehazi. We see the judgment of God's people. It's it's sobering. You, You see within this the peril of unbelieving hearts. The peril of unbelieving hearts. This morning, as we close up, we we see a picture of of a woman, the Shunammite woman was a woman who trusted in the word of God. Elisha warned her, go somewhere. And what did she do? She heeded the word of God and she went. The Shunammite woman, all through the stories about her in 2 Kings, is a picture of a yielded, obedient humble heart. You see Elisha, and what does Elisha do? He boldly declares what God reveals him to do, even when it's hard. He's a man who follows God. You see this unbelieving pattern in chapters 6, 7, and 8, but mixed in between all of this, you see these humble examples of what it looks like to follow God. So today we see the peril of an unbelieving heart, but I want to encourage you, there's an alternative to that. There's the blessing of a yielded heart. The peril of an unbelieving heart, but the blessing of a yielded heart. I want to give you four prayers as we go into the Lord's Supper. Four prayers. Four prayers. We see the danger of hardened hearts, the hope of gracious deliverance the encouragement of obedient vessels, the reality of holy judgment. And we come here, the prayers I want to offer you are these. Number one, oh God, reveal my heart. Oh God, reveal my heart. The psalmist says, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Are you willing to pray that? And I want to offer encouraging warning here. If you're not willing to pray that, be warned. If you're not willing to pray that, it speaks about the condition of your heart right now. Oh God, reveal my heart. Prayer number two. Oh God, give me a heart of praise, gratitude, and love in light of your delivering grace. Oh, God, give me a heart of praise, of gratitude, and love that you show kindness to your people, that you order our lives, that we can trust you with the details. Prayer number one, oh, God, reveal my heart. Prayer number two, give me a heart of praise, gratitude, and love in light of your delivering grace. Prayer number three, use me. As a willing vessel, oh God. Use me as a willing vessel, oh God. Create in my heart a humble attitude of a usable vessel. Use me as a willing vessel. 
Number four, help me embrace and reflect on Christ who took our judgment, took our place. Oh, God, reveal my heart. Oh, God, give me a heart of praise, gratitude, and love in light of your delivering grace. Number three, oh, God, use me as a willing vessel. Number four, oh, God, help me embrace and reflect on Christ who took our judgment, took our place. I pray today you know him. I pray today that as you look at the story of kings, you think about the judgment that not only these people deserve, but you see the judgment you deserve. You see the judgment and the condemnation that you will face, but you see the Lord Jesus Christ as your substitute and as your deliverer, and by faith you trust in the fact that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. We've got a table in the back. We've got a table over here. And in these last few moments, what we're going to do is take of the meal that God calls us to take of. If you've never been here when we took the Lord's Supper, here's the way this operates and works. If you're not a believer, what I ask you to do is just watch. Just watch. I want you to ask yourself, what are they doing and how does it relate to what Jesus did at the cross? Just watch. But if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ and you're seeking to walk repentant, confessing, what God shows in your life, Paul's very clear not to take the Lord's Supper flippantly. He even says that some of the people had died because they were so apathetic in the way they took of the Lord's Supper. So I'd tell you, if you're here today and you're walking in active, habitual sin, don't take this. Don't take it. As you don't, as you sit there not taking it, though, I want you to pray, oh, God, reveal my heart. Oh, God, lead me to confession and repentance. So I'll pray, and I'm going to give you opportunity to go to the tables. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I pray, oh, Lord, that we would see your grace and your goodness. I thank you, God, that in our sin we have hope of a gracious Redeemer, Lord, we praise you for your kindness and your goodness and your mercy. We celebrate, O oh Lord, what your Son has done for us at the cross of Calvary. We praise your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.